I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome back to Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. This is episode 12. I wanted to thank all of my listeners for giving me over 22,000 individual downloads since September of last year when I started this fortnightly podcast. And I want to go over a couple things before we get into the meat of our subject today. Uh, number one, I, I'm a history geek. I'm a book geek. I'm an inveterate reader. And when I'm on my commutes, I try to make my time worthy. And I have about a half hour commute to work, give or take five or ten minutes, depending on the, the traffic. So I have taken upon myself the last six months to start in 2008 with the New Books and Military History podcast, which is a podcast that, of course, not only looks at military history books, looks at some others on the periphery of that particular inquiry. I've had to pick and choose, because if I were to listen to all of them, I think there's something like 700 of them, and not all of them are appropriate nor interesting for me. Now, I have found it very constructive, productive, and, um, and intriguing to listen to a number of these, uh, some bad ones, lots of good ones, some very excellent ones. But a sorry trend that I've noticed since I started in 2008, I'm now in 2022, is that ever since 2020, and we all know what that happens to coincide with, the race, class, gender, and wokeness quotient not only of the authors, not only of the interviewers, not only of the books chosen, seems to have gone up exponentially, which has made my job of completing all the new books in military history that I care for easier because I can't listen to as many of them because they are freighted with the apologetics uh, of that particular collectivist and government supremacist delusion known as wokeism that has infected our society for the last few decades, and, and political correctness really took on a mind of its own in the last few decades, but it seems to have characterized the area that we live in to such an extent that I have to pick and choose those things which I wish to listen to. Like books, so many books, so little time. Same with podcasts, so many podcasts, so little time. So I have to pick and choose the ones that benefit me. And I have found that in this little project of listening to this podcast, to and from work and, and errands that I do in my car, I am listening to less and less of them. But still, new books in military history, look it up. I listen to mine on Spotify. You'll probably be able to find some things that you'll find of tremendous interest, as have I, for instance. How much information did I have about the 1831 slave rebellion in Jamaica and what that did to the British Empire? Uh, how much did I know about the Italians in Ethiopia and Eritrea and Abyssinia before World War II? Not much of all, much much at all, but now I do. I had ambitions with the Dash, a companion podcast to this, which is a Stoicism podcast, to also do it on a fortnightly basis as I do this, but that has simply not transpired. 
not for want of time, but for want of topics. While the topics for this particular podcast, Irregular Warfare, I find that uh, they're practically limitless. I probably have a good two, three, possibly four years of fortnightly podcasts to put together for this very um, podcast modality, Chasing Ghosts. But not so much for the Dash. But I do want to draw your attention, as I think many of my listeners would find it interesting, even if you're not interested in Stoicism, to listen to episode three, which happens to be my last episode, where I talk about moral injury, martial injury, the kind of injury to conscience, morality, and virtue that soldiers and all participants in conflict suffer. I dug into it for a little bit. I I think there's there's a lot more that I can dig out of it, and it probably would serve this audience well to give it a try and see what you think. That is episode three of The Dash. And those who wish to get in touch with me, please email me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. So episode 12, what we're going to cover today is government incompetence. I mention it in the opening intro to every one of these episodes for those listeners who have been listening since episode one or whatever episode or episodes you chose to listen to, maybe at random, backwards, whatever the case may be. You'll notice in my introduction, I always talk about the hijinks of government and how government incompetence has a lot to do with the problems that we face. In episodes two and four, respectively, in my podcast series, I started out talking about anti-fragility and fragility in episode two. And in episode four, I talked about the sheer impossibility of the West, Western militaries in this regard, and Western whole-of-government approaches to be able to prosecute a counterinsurgency successfully. Now, there are some outliers there to this bell curve of failure and defeat that seems to spell almost the entirety of the last few hundred years of Western counterinsurgency. The first one, of course, would be in the Western counterinsurgency, if one can characterize it broadly like that, that characterizes not only the 18th and 19th century, but even the very early 20th century of besting the American aboriginals on the North American continent, primarily between north of the Mexican border and south of the Canadian border, and so almost in essence doing a successful counterinsurgency. One could characterize it that way with some controls built into it semantically. The other one that uh, that there are two other possibilities, and and I am welcome for my readers to clue me in on other ones. Uh, one of those may be Plan Columbia. I plan on doing an episode on that very subject, and whether they truly and um, truthfully took out through counterinsurgency and whole of government efforts and insurgency and killed it. The other one, of course, would be, and I'm simply not smart enough on it yet, but I will devote an episode or two or three to it in the future, is what happened in Sri Lanka, what used to be known as British Ceylon, south of the Indian subcontinent on that small island there, where science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke just happened to reside until he died. I think he retired there or lived there for a significant portion of his life. So that being the case, we covered, as I mentioned in episode two and four, 
those legs of the stool, as it were. But the other leg of the stool that I think is so critical in being skeptical, if not downright derisive, of all Western counterinsurgency efforts, East and West, but mostly West, because Eastern counterinsurgency simply isn't my, uh, my strong suit when it comes to history and scholarship. Now, that being the case, government incompetence plays, plays a huge role in that. Now, when it came to my proposal, my thesis in episode two concerning fragility and anti-fragility, those of you who haven't listened to it, I said something very simple and maybe comes from the University of the Intuitively Obvious, and that would be that between fragility and anti-fragility, anti-fragility being a term that has been pioneered, I would say discovered, not invented, by Nassim Taleb, and uh, he's written several books on on anti-fragility and his black swan thesis. What fragility is, is the ability for large modalities or systems of systems to stay together to achieve their end states. Now, anti-fragility is that when stressors are put upon a system, the system doesn't collapse or become entropic. The system actually prospers and gets stronger over time. Uh, weightlifting would be an example of that. A free, a capitalistic free market would be an example of that. A, um, a, a number of, of other things, such as from an engineering perspective, we have what's called Buckminster Fuller's creation of Fullerian domes and geodesic domes. And the reason why you see in Antarctica and the Arctic and other places where there may be high winds that would cause large, flat modalities of radars to be flipped onto the side, collapsed, or whatever the case may be, they put domes over them. And what happens with a dome is that when it gets a stressor point of wind, whether that is a macro or micro burst of wind, the entire structure itself, no matter where it is hit and the extent to which it is hit in radius, the entire structure exponentially takes that and absorbs that stressor onto the dome. And not only does it reduce the force that is laid upon that one area where the wind, for instance, may have hit it, but it also distributes it. So it turns it into a null variable where it doesn't even affect the structure's stability nor efficacy to remain intact. As a matter of fact, it gets stronger under stress. That is the essence of anti-fragility. And in episode two, what I talked about was I talked about, I made a very broad characterization, and that is this. Most, if not all, insurgencies are anti-fragile. My converse to that is that most, if not all, counter-insurgencies are fragile. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And don't forget, I did cover some of that in episode four when I talked about why counterinsurgency is an impossibility for Western success. And we'll tease that out a little bit more today. Now, all of us are a bundle of talent stacks of those things that we've done in our lifetime, those things that we pursued. For myself, I wore the uniform in the United States Navy and the United States Army for almost a quarter century, retired, took on other things. Currently, I'm an engineer. I was also uh, trained as an Austrian economist in school. To give you some insight into what Austrian economics is, and you'll understand the connection between what we're talking about today 
I had what I consider considerable fortune to have happened upon Austrian economics in the 1980s when I was going to school, and not only in the northern reaches of the California University System in Humboldt State did I find these two Austrian economists, Groby and Kaysen, hiding in the basement up there on a campus that was very hostile to their ideas. It opened up a, a whole new analytical world and framework from which I could view what was going on around me through an Austrian lens. And I wanted to let Richard Ebeling, who's been a writer in the Austrian school for some time, to illustrate just what that school is. Ebeling wrote this article 20 years ago, so when he writes, the revival of the modern Austrian school of economics may be said to have begun 30 years ago, which is now 50 years ago, during the week of June 15th through 22nd, 1974, when the Institute for Humane Studies sponsored a conference on Austrian economics for about 40 participants in the small town of South Royalton, Vermont. In 74, the Austrian school had been in hiatus for almost a quarter century. For more than 60 years before the 1940s, the Austrian economists had been considered some of the most original contributors to economic theory and policy. They were among the leading developers of the theories of marginal utility, opportunity cost, value and price, capital interest, markets and competition, money in the business cycle, and comparative economic systems, capitalism versus socialism versus the interventionist welfare state. But the rise and triumph in the 1930s and 40s of the Keynesian explanation of and prescription for the Great Depression, eclipsed all competing approaches to the problems of, of economic depression. So what I, what I wanted to emphasize here is that not only were, were there a lot of highlights as far as what their analytical approach was as opposed to other economists who I think tend to lose the mathematical force for the trees, but a tremendous amount of skepticism was put on government intervention and a tremendous amount of value-added and heavy-duty intellectual lifting and logic variants were involved in the very qualitative, heavy analysis using quantitative antecedents and ancillaries to inform the logical qualitative arguments, unlike the Keynesian monitor schools, Marxist schools, and others of economics that held the government at such a point that they thought that in the universe of those less the Austrians, all government decisions were going to be rational, good for the entirety of an economy, and ultimately, central planning would win out. Now, all of us who have been awake and alive, no matter your socioeconomic strata, no matter pretty much where you went to school, east and west, for the sober and analytical observer, one could observe that, roughly speaking, anything a government touches, and I'm not simply talking about America or the West, I'm talking about the universal human condition, they tend to make it worse. And one of the reasons that they make it worse is because you have political entrepreneurs and economic entrepreneurs. Political entrepreneurs tend to be those who are in government and what the Russians would call the nomenclatura tend to be politicians, tend to be lifelong bureaucrats, tend to be folks who are insulated from market variables because they are drawing through taxation their salaries from others without necessarily having to earn it, versus economic entrepreneurs. What you find with economic entrepreneurs is there are folks like uh, Elon Musk, auto manufacturers throughout the 20th century and the 21st century, 
aviation magnates, you name it, those people who put their own money on the line, took their own risks, did not socialize those risks to others, but it was borne out in the success or failure of their business, hence their analytical strategies and their abilities to make profits is what would enable them to succeed. Now, what I've discovered is that since getting back to the entire Sinqua Na of this podcast, Irregular Warfare, which is a subset of Regular Warfare, which is the massive conflict engine that has, however you view it, plagued or enhanced man ever since we have left the cave. Now, that being the case, what you discover is that for the most part, those are government undertakings. Now, if there are larger wars, smaller wars, whatever the case may be, what you discover is that there's a lot of mismanagement going on. There's a lot of lack of forethought, extrapolation of second and third order effects, improper planning, not taking all the variables into account. That caused me to come to the conclusion that, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think this is a pretty powerful notion, the wars that are won by competing parties are won by the least incompetent force. I repeat, wars are won by the least incompetent force. So I think that my notions in episode two and four concerning fragility, anti-fragility, and the rank incompetence of armed forces in the Western world, especially since 1945, in which arguably the United States, for instance, as a conflict complex, has yet to win a conflict. Again, I've said this once, I'll say it again. For those who think that 1991 and the Persian Gulf War, no matter how uh, meritorious the execution of that very short conflict was, all of a sudden, America and its allies, anew, in 2003, find that they're invading the country that they had supposedly bested in the first place in 1991, which is why I think that the track record between 1945 and today is that the United States basically and the West has a batting average of a big flat zero for wins when it comes to conducting counterinsurgency and even the larger conflicts. I've had a number of listeners write me and, and ask, well, why is it that I have never heard this before as far as this intellectual and moral indictment that you, Bill Bupert, are levying against all the counterinsurgency and irregular warfare efforts since the end of World War II, if not going back even further than that, but just concentrating that analytical framework to post-1945. Why? It's because there is no vested interest in Koindonistas, those who ad advocate for and are champions of this very expensive counterinsurgency complex that has cropped up in a regular warfare complex that has cropped up in the West in the past few decades. The Cointras, we happy few, we very few, like Porch, Gentile, and myself. We seem to be either in some kind of analytical ghetto, or we are simply ignored, or no one has found the interest to take these counterinsurgency narratives and work them out to their logical conclusions. 
One of the stark contrasts that I discover with myself and the army of not confreres, people who disagree with my notions on counterinsurgency, is that their notion of government competence differs quite a bit with me. Now, what I discover anecdotally, historically, analytically, and logically, and this is something that the Austrians really press home, is that no one can have perfect knowledge. No one can have that kind of rational framework where they, ha- where they have all the answers and they know what's going to occur with surety and certitude, whether forecasting or predicting more so forecasting, that success is in the offing. That is not the case. And as we've, uh, as we've discovered during this podcast series, and I haven't talked a whole lot about Afghanistan, but I think we are going on the, um, a little over the one-year anniversary of the pullout from Afghanistan. And I want to be clear on something. I'm glad that we pulled out Afghanistan out of Afghanistan when we did. I wish we had done it years earlier, if not even not started it in the first place. The way we left, though, of course, left for a lot of unintended consequences and second and third rank extrapolations that we have yet to see reverberate wholly in the world and what's going to happen. Not only is it the loss of prestige and political capital on the part of the United States and its Western allies who participated in the Afghan and and, uh, Iraqi war, but we find that in Libya, Yemen, the Horn of Africa, Libya especially, and and I I will be doing a future episode, Libya couldn't possibly have been left worse off than after the American and Allied interventions from 2010 to 2014. Just a disaster of biblical proportions. But we'll cover that in a future episode. So I'd like to offer two thought experiments here. The first one is very simple, and it's incumbent upon you, the listener. In your family, friends, relations, acquaintances, your circle, maybe folks you know at work, can you think of the number of times that government from the local to the county to the state to the federal level, and even worse, in organizations like the United Nations, the WHO, things like that, can you think of the faux pas or errors or calamities or cavalcades of failure or even failure cascades that you've seen as a result anecdotally of what you know about government at work at any level and how effective it is versus what can be delivered to you via what I would point out as a constrained but nonetheless somewhat free market in the United States. I'll leave that to your judgment. And some people, of course, are going to have a lens. Unfortunately, most of the people who happen to have this lens are those with non-STEM degrees from our university system in which the failed government school education system from K through 12 launches certain personages into non-STEM degree fields in the colleges. And they tend to be people who are what I refer to as collectivist and government supremacists, who find that in their own analytical, maybe even intellectual worldview, that central planning, big government, Leviathan government, 
and the winnowing, if not the radical narrowing of people's choices, is the very best way to organize a society. A society by which, on their part, absent initiated violence from the government couldn't get its job done because it's built on initiated violence and force. But let's do this. So I said this was the first of two parts. The second part is this. This podcast is, for the most part, all about conversations about the military, the martial way, conflicts, wars, conflict complexes, and everything in between. So let's take a look at this, for instance, just the numbers. In 1960, the U.S. spent $47.35 billion on national defense. And if I recall, I think that was near 8 to maybe a little south of 9% of the total GDP. Fast forward to 2021, and we've spent $800.67 billion for that budget year for defense. Now, that number's a little coy. I would say that that number is just south of $1 trillion because of the number of dollars in DOE and maybe a small smattering of dollars spent by NASA and maybe other agencies that is wholly owned and devoted to the military complex, not to mention the the intelligence community, which I think has 14 or 15 agencies, among which are the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, and, and others, and the money that they spend, which has a direct input into military activities, both domestically and abroad. So maybe we can we can say in 2021, it, it reads that we spent 800, that the U.S. spent $800 billion. I'd put that closer to a trillion dollars. And of course, that puts us at about just south of 4% of the GDP. Now, it's astonishing to think, of course, that at half the expenditure of GDP, we are spending, let's see, if you if you do the simple math, it would be 16 times that original number, $47 billion on national defense in 1960. So let's consider for that trillion dollars, what kind of return are we getting? Well, here's what we have, and we're just going to examine the 21st century. So we have September 11th, 2001. Wherever one places the blame for that occurring, was it blowback? Was it because America was suffering a moral injury for either misdeeds or good deeds abroad? That is agnostic to what we're trying to get across here. The point that I'm trying to get across is that government incompetence simply in delivery of material assets for both combat, combat support, and combat service support, to use the Army Argo, has just been God's awful. As a, for instance, with major programs, let's look at the U.S. Navy. They have the littoral combat ship, otherwise known as the little crappy ship, of which they were going to build tens of these holes, but they pretty much sort of stopped production on them, and they're even retiring some of them 10 years into their time. We have the DDG, the new destroyer, called the Zumwalt, of which they were going to have dozens of holes, of which we probably, holes, that would be H-U-L-L-S, of which I think we have three, and it was going to even mount a gun, but when the defense manufacturer who was going to produce the rounds for it 
equilibrated and said, you know, it's going to cost a million dollars a round. The Zumwalt folks canceled the gun, so all it has is vertical launch systems for all the missile modalities that we have. And then we have the USS Ford, the new carrier, the new supercarrier. Now, it should be another episode in the future. I'm a severe skeptic of the efficacy, need, and even military efficiency of carrier forces. And I, I think that they are in anachronism. And I think we spend a disproportionate amount of political and actual capital on a war fighting modality that, like the man tank, has seen its time, and its time, like the crossbow, is no longer. But the Ford, the first of three, apparently, two of these holes have been laid down, they're building them, cannot launch and retrieve aircraft reliably because it uses an electromagnetic air launching system, what's called an EMALS. Now, that retrieval is also connected to the electromagnetic system. So instead of using the almost 80-year-old technology of steam catapults that aircraft carriers have been using in the West, particularly in the United States for the longest time, they decided to go with something that's called concurrent technology, which is technology that is emerging, is not yet mature, but we're going to put it into a new platform that's being built and laid down so that we can take advantage of that edge in technology. Well, it has a 1 in 35 to 1 to 40 mean time between failures, which means that when you think about it from a naval aviation perspective, and I'm simply a spectator, not claiming to be a naval aviator, but I have colleagues and, and acquaintances who happen to be naval aviators, they tell me that you are at full military power on the deck of that carrier when you're getting ready to take off. And the combination of the power of the jet itself and the power of the launching system on a steam cat in this instance is what gets you over the bow of the carrier and airborne. What it means, and mean time between failure on steam catapults is roughly 1 in 35,000. And I'll, be sta- I'll, I'll stand corrected by some of my listeners if you have a more accurate number for M- MTBF, mean time between failures, on steam launch catapults. Steam launch catapults is between 1 and 35. I mean, EMALS catapults, the MTBF, mean time between failure, is approximately 1 in 35 to 50, which means that in sortie generation, which is how many flights are we going to put aloft in a 24-hour period of time, for instance, if you have 35 to 50 sorties, there is a chance that you are going to lose one of one or two of these very expensive aircraft into the drink, and God's willing, that naval aviator who goes down with it, if he doesn't eject in time, he gets um, he gets rescued himself, so that we not only lose the aircraft but also lose a human being. Now we find this with the army, with with a number of projects that have been either morbid or disasters. For instance, when you look at the Bradley fighting vehicle, which replaced the M113s in the 1980s, designed to be an infantry fighting vehicle with a 25-millimeter chain gun, and it's a great gun system, by the way, what they discovered is that they had to withdraw them from theater in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2007-2008, if I recall, because over 650 of them had been lost to combat IEDs, failures that were absolutely catastrophic 
where they couldn't be used any longer, and they withdrew them wholesale from theater. Now, one could characterize this and say, you know, using IFVs and and such, that's that's a lot that's a lot of combat power in an inappropriate place for those platforms to be. And that could ver- and, and I'm going to be charitable and say maybe that's what happened here where a determination was finally made in Afghanistan and Iraq, Iraq more so, that the days of the Bradley fighting vehicles being useful may may have been lost so that they finally, out of uh, sheer efficiency, withdrew them from the combat theater so they wouldn't put any more people in the hazard. Now, mind you, everybody's familiar with the MRAP, the, the mine-resistant armored vehicle, those big-tired, multi-axle vehicles that very tall, very unwieldy-looking, of which the technology for those V-holes, I think, was lifted from what the Wolf Turbos and Buffs were doing in the 1960s and 70s in South Africa, that they uh, they probably lifted that design somewhat. If I recall, I think almost half a trillion dollars went into the development of that now obsolete program, the MRAPs. And of course, we what we're discovering now, especially with the current conflict between Ukraine and Russia, is that you see the the U.S. and its Western coalition allies opening up the, um, the, the ammunition supply points, the ESPs, opening up all of our weapons lockers and throwing, up, throwing back the doors, hopefully going in there and saying, what's our lowest lot number, which would equate to what is our oldest munitions or munitions throwers that we have out there. And they're putting them on ships, aircraft, whatever the case may be, and sending those to the Ukraine where we are left, and I have no definitive numbers on this, but when you are sending so much of our warshot modalities overseas to this one particular conflict, and you don't have the industrial base to replace those things that you've gotten rid of, you're going to be in for some big problems. And some of these incompetence problems are brought on by the way America looks now, instead of the way America was in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. At the eve of World War II, America had an economy that was based on handcrafting, machining, blueprinting, building, huge, magnificent industrial base in the United States. That does not exist in the United States today. And when you go to update a boutique, niche, or even mainstream program. From stingers to javelins to the production of 50 BMG machine gun ammunition for the Madus, the M2 50 caliber machine gun, one of the finest small arms ever developed in small arms history. When you don't have an industrial base to support that, how will you produce not only the munitions throwers, which in this case would be guns, tanks, aircraft, but the munitions themselves. I don't have all the answers, but I do think that we are in an industrial headspace and timing today in which not only do we not have that resident in the United States, not only do we not have it in the training and educational pipeline to have those who could actually man and woe man those machines to produce these munitions and everything that accrues 
to keeping those munitions in a space in which they can be deployed, you have a disaster on your hands. And when you couple this with the native incompetence at the federal level of all manner of executing the most mundane or banal tasks from shipping difficulties and problems during the pandemic in 2021-22, the outsourcing of so much of, of the U.S. industrial base to overseas, the absolute absence of precious metals that are needed to develop these kind of things, these lead to a, a kind of fundamental, almost existential disaster where with America and its allies flirting with near-peer and peer conflict competition with the likes of China, Russia, India, India, or whatever other conflict space may appear, what's going to happen? How is that going to be serviced? How is that going to be addressed? And by the way, let's do a very quick thought experiment, and that's this. In the 1970s, just coming out of Vietnam, 1975, an ignominious pullout from Vietnam, but of course, in Bill's opinion, a pullout that should have happened way before, if not the non-deployment of soldiers to the Indochina area at all. I mean, going there was a disaster in and of itself. And as I've said in previous episodes, I, I, um, my audience is deserving of an analysis that I will conduct of the Vietnam conflict from an insurgency and counterinsurgency perspective. But nonetheless, could anybody in the 1970s or 80s have predicted who the main antagonist would have been for the American war complex in the 70s and 80s? We got a hint with Afghanistan in the 1980s because of U.S. support of the Mujahideen fighting against the 10-year-plus occupation by the USSR at the time until the USSR not only pulled out of Afghanistan but fell apart. Now, what we, what we discover is that, well, no one had that predictive framework. I mean, in the 1990s, in the 1980s, who would have said that we would have spent as much time or effort or lost as many people as we did in Somalia and Africa and Haiti, for instance? Uh, I, I think very few. Same thing with the, uh, with the 21st century. How many people in the 1980s and 90s could have predicted that not only would America be invested in a territorial conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it would expand the tentacles of that conflict to Libya, Yemen, and the Horn of Africa. Hard to say, hard to predict, and, and I don't think that anybody had the crystal ball at the time where they could have told you that that would be the case. Did I mention the U.S. Air Force and the almost literal scrapping of the F-22, their determination to get rid of one of the finest aircraft ever made after World War II, the A-10, and of course the F-35 Turducken, which it may be, it may go down in history as one of the worst aircraft ever made in the Western world. But nonetheless, we'll let history take that determination. So let's contrast with Russia's yearly expenditures of defense. And we're going to look not from 1960 to 2023, because that wouldn't fit the paradigm here, because the paradigm here is that from 1989 to 1991, the USSR fell apart and fell into Russia 
and shed off some of the Stan brothers on its southern underbelly and other things that occurred to make the country, frankly, smaller than it was under the apogee of the USSR and its possession of all the Stan brothers. Now, what we have in billions of dollars from 1992 to 2023, if we take a look at that, is that in 1993, they started with $7.7 billion in expenditures. And right now, I think in 2021, which was the last figures that I saw, $65.91 billion is their peak expenditure for defense. Now, remember, this is against a trillion dollars in the U.S. Now, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and the reason I've been pretty mute and mum about that conflict is that for the first time in my lifetime as a keen observer and historical observer of conflicts, I have never been exposed to so much misinformation, disinformation, and frankly, the fact that I can't trust any of the data that is coming out on the Ukraine and Russia conflict. So I'm, I'm going to probably not talk about it a lot at all until I am sure of the data that I have to come up with some kind of sober observation or bundle of observations on just what the hell is going on over there. And I simply don't know. But to say that large Western combines or large Western nations aren't absolutely checkerboarded and and riven with incompetence at every drop of the hat. Rod Serling, the 11th Airborne veteran, Airborne Division veteran, who served for three years in World War II and was even injured in uh, combat in the Philippines, he would say on his great Twilight Zone series, imagine if you will, imagine if you will, a country that spends nearly a trillion dollars a year on defense, and I put defense in air quotes, has more than 800 known bases planet-wide, has tremendous resources and materiel, weapon systems, warships, aircraft, mud to space, you name it. And since 1945, this very same, very expensive combat modality has failed to win a single conflict. And it looks as if when we look at the numbers today and we weigh everything in the balance and we look at what's happening to the military, we can say with pretty much surety that as history has taught us in World War I, World War II, Vietnam, that first year or two in a conflict is the hardest for the U.S. and they have a really tough time fending off defeat at every turn. The point that I want to make here is that in addition to the anti-fragility, fragility, and rank, the rank incompetence that seems to be part and parcel of every large government enterprise planet-wide is yet another thing that needs to be taken into consideration when considering why counterinsurgency or in this case, irregular warfare, is usually done rather poorly by the United States and its allies. I'd like to thank you for listening. I invite reader comments and constructive criticisms. 
You can write me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill, out.